Hi friends, I'm certified life and fertility coach Abby Feeder and you're listening to The Fertility Chick. This show is all about the path to parenthood, which is never the same for everyone, and our guests' professional success along the way. Today we're going to be talking a lot about third-party reproduction. And when I say a lot, I mean we're going to look at it from all different angles. Somebody who was sort of a product of third-party reproduction, or at least some of her family was, and somebody who's used third-party reproduction in her own family building. Third-party reproduction refers to any sort of third-party that might be in Involved. So a sperm donor or an egg donor or an embryo donor or a surrogate. And today's guest, Sydney Sharon, her life is just, she's literally the epitome of a modern family. And she shares it so beautifully on Instagram. You can follow her. We'll post all of her info. But her story is so fascinating and so lucky how her career path has followed. So please enjoy. Here's Sydney. Hi, Sydney. Welcome to the Fertility Chick. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy you're here. So your story is so many layers to it. Why don't we start with your with you and your wife? Okay, that's a good place to start. Yeah. That's sort of the beginning. So just a little bit about us, how we met, where we how we got yeah. to where we are. My wife and I met in high school. We were 16. We were introduced through a mutual friend, and it was very fast and passing. And that was kind of it until senior year. She was kind of more integrated in our group. We both figured out we were doing the same study abroad program together in Israel. And I was like, oh, maybe she could be one of my friends. And fast forward, we became best friends. We had an amazing year abroad together. We came home to the States and she went to Cal State Northridge. I went to a small university in Maryland. I was miserable. I hated it. I transferred back here to California where we're both from and wound up going to school with her. And it was over spring break that my best friend was like, what's going on with you two? (sighs) I had only ever had boyfriends. And she's like, you and I are best friends and we don't behave like that. So you might want to sleep on that and figure out what's going on. And we figured it out (laughs) and we've been together ever since. So it's been 14 years that we've been together. It just like, I just liked her. Like it had nothing to do with gender. I just like fell in love with a person. It happened to be a girl, did all the traditional lesbian things. Like we moved in after like four months, we were 20. Did you buy a Subaru? We had a Subaru for a short period of time. It, Birkenstocks, you know, the whole the yeah. whole shebang, but we you hauled it up, we lived together literally like four months after we started dating when we were 20. Which um, in fairness, like you'd already been literally best friends and traveled together. I feel like yes. you made it through a lot of the hurdle, the initial hurdles. Yeah. We, I, I mean, look, it was such a great foundation for any kind of relationship, right? Like having that best friend is like goals. And we got married, had a big fat Jewish wedding. And it was leading up to our wedding when we created our, our wedding registry you know, I wanted my KitchenAid mixer, but that was kind of it. We'd been living together for six, seven years at that point. We had all of the basic house stuff. What we knew we wanted and didn't have was money for fertility treatment because I think one of, I guess one of the pros of being a same-sex couple who knows they want to have kids is you're going to need fertility treatments, You're whether it's just sperm or just an egg. I mean, those things are cost a lot of money. So we put together a future family fund, and that's what we had people kind of give to us on our wedding. And two years later, we started our baby-making journey, and here we are, seven years married, three kids under five, blissfully happy and exhausted. 
I love it. Okay, let's rewind now. Yeah. So for the record, your wife's name is Britt. And so had she also – you don't have to speak for her if it's not comfortable, but like had she also dated men? Nope. She knew she was – I mean, she had like a boyfriend in seventh grade. That was the extent. She she came out in high school. Okay. So you guys do this travel abroad – And you're like BFF traveling together in Israel. Are you like dating other people? (laughs) Yeah, that was kind of my like (laughs) balls to the wall. Let's go. Something happened over those international waters in the airplane. I was just like, I turned into like some kind of crazy kid that was like, let's try and do everything. I only really was with guys. If Britt was on this podcast, I'm kind of happy she's not because she can't interrupt (laughs) and share her side. She would tell you that we had our first kiss in Tel Aviv. While that's not... Not true. It was like, you know, when you're out with a bunch of friends partying in Israel and you're 18 and it's all legal to drink and you're all drunk, like you just kind of kiss whoever, like whatever. It was just a kiss. That wasn't like because I liked her. It was just Mm -hmm. what drunk girls do sometimes. Sure. Sure. But I like that she holds to it, honestly. I was like, see, you did like me a lot longer than I liked you. Yeah. My husband and I also have a difference of opinion on what our first date counted as based on whether we made out afterwards. So I I think that's like a litmus test sometimes. There you go. Like I think we had a date before we made out and he said it wasn't a date until we made out. So I don't know. Anyway, okay. So at what point did you – so I want to also talk about your job and then we can kind of marry the two. So so how long have – tell everybody what you do and how long you've been doing it. (laughs) So I am the social media manager and influencer partnership person for Cooper Surgical. That is the umbrella company. I manage the social media for California Cryobank, Donor Egg Bank USA, and Cord Blood Registry. Amazing. And did your actual life experience affect you wanting to have this job? This just, man, you know, like when all the pieces just kind of fall into place and um, my wife and I have our own digital marketing company and we do social media for other people. Never once did we think that, look, this was also before influencers was even like a word in the dictionary. And Thea's four and a half. So about five and a half years ago, we, we created an Instagram channel for our life to document what it was like for two women to go through what it was like to, to make a baby. No one was doing that. And you hear people talk about that all the time. We Like literally nobody five and a half years ago was talking about this. And for us, because influencers and content creation wasn't even like a speck on the radar, for us, it was just kind of like this love letter that was public that we wanted to make for our children so that they can kind of see what it took for us to, to make them. We also wanted to help with the stats. When we were going to meet with our doctor, we were like, what are our odds? And really, he only kind of had odds on a heterosexual couple that had no fertility issues. And I was like, what about like, I'm a woman who has no fertility issues that I know, actually, I have PCOS. What are my odds? We're using good sperm. Like we got it from a sperm bank. It has to be good. So like, what are my odds? He goes, I can kind of really only tell you based on what normal data would be if you were a man and woman out in the wild. Mm. So we just kind of wanted to document what it would be. Um, we shared about California Cryobank because that's where we we got our sperm from. And we were, we someone reached out to us and asked if we would be an influencer for them and, you know, have a few pieces of content go live and our content performed really well. And then I got offered a job <laughs> and I said, Amazing. no, 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 I, I have a job. I, when was I offered this job? I, Thea was like one and a half. I was very pregnant with Nathan. And they're like, yeah, but we are a team of moms who have kids. This is like what we do. 
um, we want to work with you. We need, we need you. And I was like, I had literally said a few months before um, I was offered this job, I was talking to Britt and I said, I would just love to create content that makes a difference in the fertility space or in the pregnancy space. I loved my childbirth education classes. I did something that I don't think most women do. I think most women kind of take the six week class at the hospital. And I did a 12 week intensive uh, childbirth class that kind of focuses more on the natural like women have been doing this literally since the beginning of time. And so I had unmedicated home births. I loved my experience. I had access to amazing resources and education. I was like, I just want to do stuff like that. And then this job was like, do you want to work for California Cryobank and Cord Blood Registry? And I'm like, how, how is this real life? Yeah. So I've been there. I've been there for two and a half years and I love my job. Love. Mm. You can tell you, I know I work with you in that regard as well. And I can tell how much you love your job, which is so nice. It's, you know, I think when, when you go in and you're a social media person for a company, figuring out the tone of the brand and the voice, and there is no figuring out. I, I, I am that on all of the sides. Donor Egg Bank kind of took um, a little bit more diving into, cause that's kind of a harder <laughs> niche. California Cryobank, 80% of our families are same-sex couples. I am one of their families. I've, right. I've walked the shoes. I've tried at-home insemination. I did IUI. I did IVF. I've done it all. Cord blood registry. I've been pregnant. I've given birth. I finally got to do CBR for myself with my third. So like I, I live and breathe this. And, and being a mom has been, that is the one identity I have longed to be since I was a little girl. And I like... I know a lot of my friends have had like identity crisis since they've become moms. And I'm like, no, I now know who I am. Mm. So when you were thinking and contemplating about marrying a woman, how did your desire to become a mom affect your, your brain and your thinking about that? It didn't at all. Mm. I just knew it would happen. I didn't, I just figured you get sperm and you get pregnant. And if it doesn't work, you adopt. Like I was going to be a mom. It's amazing. So, oh my God, so many layers here. So to that end, because <laughs> I know you grew up with a bit of third-party reproduction in your family. Which I didn't know about until I was pregnant with my first. Okay. That's what I was going to ask you. So yeah. tell everybody like what's BioFest and okay. then can you tell me how you learned about it and what it's been like for you since? And then I want to like marry all these things together because yeah. they are so crazy, but so intertwined. Yeah. I'm working on my elevator pitches for all these different elements because I know it's a lot and I want, I, I love our story and, and I think we need kind of, I know it's a happy story and I know it's not the same for everybody, but I think the more it gets talked about, hopefully the more other families like mine can actually embrace whatever their family looks like. There is no such thing as a traditional family anymore. That's, you know. Um, so when I was pregnant with my first, our like 12, 13 week viability date was around Mother's Day. And I was like, oh my God, this is so perfect. Britt and I are about to be two new moms and let's announce our pregnancy. And Mother's Day is on Sunday. And I think Friday, my dad came home. I was living at my parents' house. My dad came home and he was pale. And I was like, what's wrong? And he goes, I have to tell you guys something, but I need to talk to your mom first. Now, <laughs> my mom is an analyst. There is nothing we have never not talked about. Okay. There is no taboo topics in our house. I knew how babies were made at a very young age. I knew what a period was when I was eight. I mean, I was a very well-prepped, well-versed kid. And I was like, 
oh my God, someone's dying, obviously. Right. No, it turned out, long, very long story short, my dad was a sperm donor when he was a dental student at NYU while he was dating my mom. And through 23andMe, two of his biological children had reached out to him. Now, of course, my dad being my dad totally forgot that my mom knew about him donating all those years ago. They had, they were dating. Um, she knew about this and knew it would one day be a possibility. But for my parents to not tell us has to mean it was so out of sight, out of mind. Mm-hmm. And like, how could that, that sperm bank is no longer around. That was like a little clinic that you just pass by on in New York City. It, mm-hmm. it, it's the fact that anything came from that is like a miracle in itself. Like the original pump and dump, I feel like. Exactly. I mean, like they literally were like right next to NYU. This is where yeah. the medical Everyone and dental went. students are. This is exactly the kind of you know people we need. And the requirements back then are not what they are today. And my dad logged into 23andMe and had two connections. And out of one of those connections, that was with Sabrina. Sabrina goes, by the way, I can, I'm, an, I'm an only child, but I connected with somebody else on Ancestry.com and she's my sister. My dad's like, oh, that's great. She's like, no, I don't, I'm an only child and just found out I have a sister. So my dad went from two to three real fast. So that's how we found out my dad was a sperm donor. And then within that one year, we found six, we call each other bio sibs. So bio siblings, we're all biologically related. There's six of them. My mom and dad got married, had me and my two brothers. So we were a family of five, but we, my dad now tells people when he meets people that he has nine children. Oh my gosh. Um, We have all met. We all love each other. We're all obsessed with each other. We have a very active WhatsApp channel. And to answer your first question, what is BioFest? Literally, I think within the first year that we all um, found out about each other, we started meeting annually for like like our family reunion and we call it BioFest. And we usually have really cute shirts and a little logo. And two of those bio fests were two different weddings. So like we all got to be at the, each other's weddings. I mean, it's it's magical. It's really like the best case scenario of well, what could be out there for somebody that wants that. A hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred percent. It's just wild. I had been begging. Yeah, you know, I have two. I have two younger brothers. So first, I'm an, I'm the only girl, and second, I'm the oldest. So. All the first, the oldest child, you know, things that you can think of that that's just me. I'm that stereotypical kid. And I begged my parents for an older brother, begged because all my best friends had an older brother. And I was just like, I want that. And my parents said it wasn't possible. So needless to say, (laughs) possible. And now I have uh, two older brothers. Um, Yeah, we're all, we love each other. We just had our last BioFest in July. Uh, for my dad's 60th birthday, we all were together. And all of the BioSibs kids, there's like, I have three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, eight out of nine were together of like the grandchildren era. Unbelievable. So I'm so curious, and I know you can't go into each and every, but the circumstances that brought each family to a donor were majority same-sex couple? One was a same-sex couple. Everybody else was dealing with some level of male factor infertility. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. And are the parents of each of your bio sibs like involved as well? Like, have they met your dad? Uh, Okay. So Sabrina lost her father 
she was one of the weddings. Mm -hmm. She lost her dad like a year after finding out about my dad, which actually made her closer with him. She just, for her, her experience of her dad, when she found out she was donor conceived was like, oh my God, I love this man even more. He went to the end of the world to have me. Mm -hmm. So at her wedding is when my dad and her mom met. And that was a very like surreal moment. So my dad's met Sabrina's mom. My One of my other sisters, she doesn't have either of her parents living anymore. Or her mom is not living and her dad's out of the picture. Max was the other wedding and he was the same sex house. And he, my dad has met his mom's. Hillary, her dad is not in the picture. He was not a great guy. Her mom and her grandmother are amazing human beings. They are uh, friends with all of us on Facebook. And my dad has met Hillary's mom and grandmother. Jordan, we've met her family. And Will, Will's dad passed away uh, many, many years ago. Um, and his mom is like, he has a like needs to know kind of relationship with her. So he's the only one that we haven't, my dad has not connected with. Got it. It's amazing. And your mom is such an incredible human for going with all of this too. So my mom, I said in the beginning, she's, she's an analyst. So she was in social work school at the time. This is like field day for her. She's like, this is just, yeah. And my mom wanted like a hundred kids. And my dad was like, we can have one. And they settled on three. Um, (laughs) So my mom got everything she wanted also. It's kind of, yeah, it's, uh, listen, it's like we had this magic wand and we kind of all had all the things we all ever wanted. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's, it's magical. Okay. So, and how did Britt's family handle all of this? I think they're kind of indifferent. Mm. They're just... They, you know, they're kind of Israeli kibbutzniks. They just kind of go with the flow and, you know, they, they literally grew up on a kibbutz. So actually kind of my aha moment right now is they're all community based and that's true. The more the merrier. So the more the merrier. Right. Okay. So let's talk about each of your fertility treatments with your three children because they were each a little bit different. So when we were ready to start trying... I wanted to try at home because I thought that was really romantic and cool. And I do know that people can conceive at home through an at-home insemination with frozen donor sperm. However, the statistics and odds I did not like for me. I have PCOS. I have irregular periods. Um, The amount of stress, which obviously doesn't help anybody ever, it was I wanted help. I wanted medical tracking. I wanted a doctor who knew what they were doing. I wanted the most accurate aim. I wanted all of it. So we did try at home once and I was just like, we're never doing this again. This was every every time you try, that's a vial or two down and vials aren't, they're not, they're not cheap, a lot less expensive than an egg, but like not wasteable. I I don't want to just waste it. So after one try at home and that was that, that was not for, that was not for us. We met with our doctor and I loved him. He helped my cousins get, get pregnant. And I, so I didn't interview anybody. I was just like, you're our doctor because my cousin loved you. So I love you. And he said, let's do a medicated IUI. And we got pregnant on the first try. And I thought it was a joke. And then when I was like, okay, well, I guess the numbers don't lie. I'm probably going to miscarry. So I spent most of my pregnancy with Thea. Terrified. Terrified. Just because you knew the statistics? 
Uh, I just felt like the other shoe had to drop. Because it was so easy. It was too easy. Um, mm. And I was expecting an uphill climb and battle. And I knew what other people have had to go through. And that wouldn't be fair for me to just get pregnant on the first try. But we did. And It's interesting because we talk a lot about on the show about the difference in expectation between heterosexual and same-sex couples mm. because not that it's a comparison, but it's often so much more devastating to a same-sex couple who never even considers that they would have any kind of help needed. Whereas for same-sex couples, like you said at the beginning, we just knew we were going to have to do something quote-unquote unconventional. Now it is conventional, but that at the time, maybe not. Yeah. Um, and so I just find it interesting that still you internalized it in some way as there would be a problem because why should it be this easy for you? And the amount of guilt I have with all of my pregnancies is um... – I have a lot of guilt around my pregnancies. Mm. I have guilt around wanting another kid. And then I have a ton of anxiety that's already starting to get compounded leading up to the potential of us doing that. Because we got pregnant on the first try with Thea. We were ready to start trying. Oh, <laughs> uh, Britt was finally okay with us starting to try for baby number two. I was 11 months postpartum. Why? Why did we do that? <laughs> well, the reason was, I said, Britt, I said, look, um, you know, the doctor said you have about a one in 25 chance of getting pregnant with doing IUI the way we are doing it. Medicated, checking the growth of the, e of the, of the egg. I did Clomid. We did an HCG trigger shot. Like all of that compounded. I have about a 25% chance. So I was like, within four tries, I should get pregnant. I said, because I'm breastfeeding, because I have PCOS, because this doesn't work on the first try, I want to start now to give my body a few months to be like, oh, okay, this is what we're doing. So we went in at 11 months. I was exclusively breastfeeding, which I have now wow. learned is not ideal. That's, that's a, yeah. No, that's a, that's a wife's tale. You could be oh, really? exclusively breastfeeding and still get pregnant because we got pregnant on the first try with Nathan at 11 months postpartum. It's amazing. I feel like it's not necessarily that they say you can't. It's more that you shouldn't only because of prolactin, which is, right, Thea, the hormone. Thea nursed the entire pregnancy. My, my God. Milk, my milk did dry up. It was very painful. Britt would walk in on me sobbing and like quietly because I was nursing Thea to sleep, but I didn't have milk. And Britt's like, you know, you could say no. And I was like, you can't say no to a baby. Like, mm -hmm. how dare I do that? Luckily, when I did get pregnant with Zoe, Nathan was about 22 months and he was just not interested when my milk changed and dried up. So he weaned on his own, which I much prefer. So yeah, we went in 11 months postpartum. I got pregnant with Nathan and first try and that stuck and we welcomed him and I had two under two. And that was really hard. That was a whole, that's motherhood hard. By the way, I think I've said this too before. I think that's harder than twins. Everyone's always twins like, you oh my God. together. Yeah, and then you're done. Like you, once they're done, once they need to start brushing their teeth, they brush their teeth. You don't have to keep going, you know. Yeah, and Thea, Thea, Thea was my first baby. She, I, she was going to go to school when she was ready to go to college. That's when she was okay to leave me. Was when she turned 18. But then we welcomed Nathan, and it was in the middle of the pandemic. We mm -hmm. got the keys to our new house the day I went into labor. You know all the things. So yeah. Thea wound up starting preschool when Nathan turned four months but I missed out on that newborn phase with Nathan. I was mm -hmm. in, I don't really remember it. I yeah. remember it because of photos and videos I see. It was a blur. It mm -hmm. was, it was a blur. 
And we realized like, okay, when we're ready for number three, like we need to have kids that are in preschool five days a week, full time, because I want to be able to give myself to the newborn. That Mm -hmm. time is so fleeting and so crucial and critical and exhausting. I need to know that my, my first two are in school. So when that time was ready, we also had been able to sa- save up a little bit more. One of the amazing benefits of Cooper Surgical is they do help with a stipend for fertility treatments. So that helped with our IVF. Britt really wanted a Brit baby, but has zero interest in being pregnant. And I love being pregnant for I don't know why. And <laughs> we decided to do reciprocal IVF. So it's one IVF cycle, but it's Brit doing the egg retrieval making an embryo and me carrying. We have we use the same donor for all of our babies. Brit's egg retrieval, we got eight mature eggs, seven fertilized on day one, eight, seven fertilized on day one, five made it to day, what is it, five, mm-hmm. six, five? Nice. And then we decided to freeze and send out for PGT testing. And everyone's like, why would you spend the money? You guys are young. And I was like, I don't know. We're Jewish. Our donor has Jewish ancestors. I just, I want to listen. We've already invested what we've invested an extra few thousand dollars for a little bit more peace of mind is what I want out of the five, only two were genetically sound. Mm. And that is why we did that. And we transferred one and it stuck. So we got pregnant on the first try with each of our rounds. IVF is brutal. I know you have been through it more time. I I mean, I did one round and there were times where Britt would go to administer my shot and I would start crying before the needle was even prepped because mm. mm. I just, and it's not even like the needle itself hurts or the medicine going in hurts. It's the after compounded with 77 shots is brutal. It's yeah. brutal. I don't know how people do this. I don't know I how know. people do it. Kind and of the same determination where you say, I know I wanted, I knew I wanted to be a mom and that was whatever. it. Yeah, you do whatever. How did Britt fare with her cycle? She's such an interesting person. I administered all of her shots. Now I have PCOS and a lot of my medications are like the injectables that you, similar to the egg retrieval, but Britt is not good with needles. So I did all of her shots for her and she did great. She had very little to no discomfort maybe a day or two before her egg retrieval, she's like, yeah, I might feel a little bloated. Like it was very, very minimal. minimal. Great. Went in for the egg retrieval. Everything was great. Then that's when she started to suffer. The recovery post-surgery was really hard for her for about three weeks. Mm -hmm. Until she got her next cycle, she was in a lot of pain. It It took her a while to get up on her feet. Wow. Um, was it like officially diagnosed as over hyper, hyper, ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome or it just was a bad recovery? I think it was just a bad recovery. She does not have a great threshold of pain to start yeah. with. She's never had to be put under. So I think it was, she has a just lot of anxiety in general. It was, you know, it's, it was a lot. It was, it was a lot. Okay. So you welcomed adorable Zoe, number three. And let me also say that your mother was your doula, I think in all three of your births, right? Yes. She was also at the conception of all of my babies. So I know people have their rituals of like French fries. (laughs) I have to have a glass of wine the night before any of my procedures. My mother has to be at the conception of all of these babies. And then we have to go and have shabu shabu after. Oh my God. This is like the most exotic family life I've ever heard of. And I love it so much. I love it so much. Okay. So 
Now let's unpack your anxiety. I, you you told me you've always wanted four kids. Yes. You have one tested embryo on ice. Yes. Tested normal. Yep. Viable. Where's your anxiety coming from? So we both know we, Britt and I, from the get-go, 20 years old, dating, like first date topic, how many kids do you want? We both said four. I really want it to work. So my anxiety comes from, okay, it's worked those last three times. This is probably that one time that it might not work. And I really, I have dreamt of baby boy Benjamin my whole life. I was obviously thrilled when I was pregnant with my little baby girl for the first time, but I really have dreamt of Benjamin my whole life. And then we got pregnant with Nathan, but I named Thea. So Britt got to name Nathan. And when we found out we had a boy, I was like, there he is. There's Benjamin. I mean, look, like I, I know it's an embryo. I know it's not a person, but you have an embryo and you flash a whole life of who this person could be. So I think my anxiety comes from, I really want it to work. Like this is the time that I really want it to work. What if it does? What if it does? Like, holy crap, that's another person I'm taking care of for the rest of my life that I've committed to, that I've dreamt of, that I already love. What if it doesn't? Do We've already decided we're not going to do another round of IVF if this doesn't work. We will consider doing a few more rounds of IUI. And if those don't work, we'll probably either be done or eventually maybe look into adoption if that number four was really so critical for us. But in terms of our own fertility journey of us having our own children biologically, it's that one baby boy on ice, um, maybe a few rounds of IUI. Okay. And you're not going to start today, I hope. No. No. (laughs) So we learned that we needed our kids to be in preschool, but we also learned that they need to be sleeping a lot better throughout the night because Mm -hmm. I've shared about it a few times on our Instagram. Nathan is not a great sleeper. I am a very big believer in co-sleeping and bed sharing. And we did that with Thea for 14 months, transferred her to a big girl bed, and it was seamless and awesome. Nathan, I think because my pregnancies and babies were so back to back, I just needed some space and I kicked him out of not just our bed, but our room at like three or four months. And I have a lot of guilt about that too. Mm. Um, I went to him every time he woke up and nursed him. He was exclusively breastfed for the first year and breastfed until 22 months. But I think he, out of those two babies, needed more parent attachment and we didn't give it to him. I was also in survival struggle mode and I don't really remember the first four months of his life anyway. Mm. So I, I do feel guilty about that. And as long as Britt sleeps with him, he's fine. But sharing a bed with a toddler is exhausting in its own. So even if you're asleep, it's not like you're deep sleeping. Yeah. And meanwhile, I have a baby that I'm taking care of. Zoe was an amazing newborn sleeper, but, you know, they turn four or five months and they start to learn to roll and to sit and they cut teeth and they learn to stand and walk. And like, I personally think five to 10 months old is the most sleep disruptive months because they're learning all these things. Yeah. So we're both exhausted and yeah. having two exhausted parents is just really hard. challenging. So number four will come, hopefully, when Zoe's in school, preschool, and we kind of have a better read on how everybody's sleep patterns are. And Plus when- by then, Thea will be old enough to like actually help, I feel like. Yeah, she already thinks she can. So yeah. it- <laughs> both sweet and cute and kind of actually makes it a little bit Scary. harder for us. Yeah. Yeah, she likes to just go and pick Zoe up. And I'm like, you are four and a half years old. You are a baby yourself. All really good problems to have. 
Yes. Yes. Okay. So just in wrapping up here, is there any, I feel like you've already given, but is there any phrase, cliche, something in your head that like you live by every day, something that you think about in each of these moments Um, that you can share? Zoomed out, like high level phrase, something that I think it's on our Instagram, but something that Britt and I have been saying since day one in our home, like visibility matters. Visibility matters as the two of us being a same sex couple, like when we walk the streets together, holding hands, kissing, like whoever is out there and sees it to just normalize that visibility matters in creating our families. And however you want to do that, it matters. And and your journey is unique to you. Even if you are a heterosexual couple and, you know, we, you make a baby the way that we were kind of taught in school, that's your version of, of modern and normal visibility matters is kind of our, our foundation and our roots in our home and to lead with love. I love it. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing your story with us. I love it. Thank you for having me. Oh, our pleasure. Thanks for being here. What a delight. So we'll post all of Sydney's info. As I said, she's very open book about her story, and I think it's so incredibly helpful for people to see. I also was thinking about doing a Mythbusters episode. It was actually one of my clients' ideas who keeps getting all these tips from various support groups that are really ridiculous. I've never seen anything like them. And I was thinking of maybe busting some of those myths. So if anybody's heard of some crazy ones, please reach out to me and let me know, and I am going to bust them or confirm them. So myths related to infertility. Thank you so much for listening. Please share, 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 share this episode with someone you think might enjoy it. Tag us, reach out to us on Instagram, and of course, follow us at The Fertility Chick, at Abby Feeder, at Encircle Fertility. And remember, you don't have to go through this alone. See you next week.